There are two sorts of Beck fans in the world. There are those who prefer this type of Beck. When I called you in the morning. And there are those who prefer this type of Beck. She's got a cigarette on For episode 111 of Love That Album podcast, both types will be discussed, but mostly focusing on this. Back in 2002, Beck added a suite of songs to his catalogue detailing his emotional state following the breakup of his relationship with his girlfriend of many years. She didn't follow the basic rule of the universe. Never do anything to make an artist of any type miserable, because you will become immortalised in his or her art, and it won't be flattering. Morris is joined by Pat Monaghan of Rocksteady Records to discuss Beck's Sea Change album, as well as the very different music leading up to it. Ever heard a discussion including Serge Gainsbourg, Mississippi John Hurt and the Beastie Boys? You will over the next hour or so. Pat and Morris philosophise as to whether pushing your broken love life to the general public is self-indulgent, father and son relationships and all other things that you expect from a music discussion. Eric Reanimator drops around for a cup of tea and to keep things acoustic while thinking about the 1992 record Marvin the Album from Melbourne band Frente. So put away your turntables and dancing shoes and get prepared to feel emotional for Beck as we get ready to love that album. Love looks away in the harsh light of the day on the kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 111 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. Thanks so much for joining us. And on the other end of a phone connection, I have someone in my hometown. Not very often I do that, but I'm very, very pleased that I have on the other end of the phone call connection, Mr. Pat Monahan, proprietor of Rocksteady Records and all-round music lover. Good evening to you, Pat. Hi, Morris. How are you? I'm in good health, good health. Welcome back to the show. I think apart from doing the end of year favourites that we did in December, I think the last time we had you on for an album discussion, oh, going back to 2016, was that when we covered the Triffids? I think so, yeah, when we did Treeless Lane. Mm, Yeah, it's been quite a while. So welcome back to the show. Wonderful to have you back. As we're recording this, it's been about three days or so since Record Store Day. Have you recovered? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a really great day. 
day at Rocksteady. Had five bands or artists playing in the shop, including one band who uh, has made up almost entirely of Beck, hardcore Beck fans. Oh, wow. One of whom I, my wife and I stood beside the last time Beck was here, which was only about two months ago. Yep. So yeah, Record Store Day was great. Fantastic. And a lot of people came through the store and got stuff and shot the shit. Indeed. Fantastic. Highlight of the day. Can you name a highlight of the day? Oh, wow. Mm, that's really hard. Sorry, didn't mean to uh, put you on the spot. No, no. An artist by the name of Evelyn Ida Morris mm-hmm. released their album on Friday through Milk Records. Oh, yes. And the, the which is Courtney Barnett and Jen Clover's label. And Evelyn performed an immaculate set on solo piano and vocals. And that was really incredible. But the precursor to that was that the vinyl, the LP release, had been running a bit late and they were held up at customs and the head of the record label that of the distributor actually drove to the airport and collected them from customs oh, wow. and gave them to Jen Cloer and Courtney Barnett who delivered them to Rock City Records on Record Store Day. Oh, she must have um, been thrilled. And it, it was a pretty amazing thing a to have Evelyn perform. Uh, Evelyn is a really amazing artist who previously worked under the name Pikelet and to actually have a Grammy nominee and the Grammy nominee's partner and the head of the record label deliver Evelyn's album to the store on record store day and to see people's faces kind of light up when, let's be honest, two genuine rock stars, you know, in terms of Jen Clower and Courtney Barnett walk through the door and feel the atmosphere in the room change from already fairly charged over record store day to becoming something even more heightened and then ahead of Evelyn's performance, which was incredible. That was all really good. But then I, I think it went to another level later on when Dorsal Fins performed. Mm-hmm. And they are normally a nine-piece, I guess, soul-influenced electro kind of pop outfit made up of members of many significant Melbourne bands. They decided to perform acoustically as a seven-piece, and then they went, nah, damn it, we'll bring the whole band in. So there was nine of them in Rock City Records <laughs> performing acoustically. Uh, look, it was all great, but those two things were really amazing. Yeah, it was, it was good fun. Oh, that's so fantastic. I'm sorry I couldn't make it into the city, but I'm so pleased we've been speaking like over the counter a few times over the last few weeks about how much you were looking forward to this, and um, I'm, I'm so glad that a lot of people came in and it, it looks like people will be telling those stories for a long while to come. That's uh, really Indeed. exciting stuff. Yeah. Okay, so what we're going to do now is, I'll first of all, let the listenership know out there what it is that we're actually talking about today. So we're going to be talking about Beck. You mentioned Beck a few minutes ago. And we're going to be talking specifically about his album Sea Change from 2002. And we'll lead up to that talking a little bit about Beck's career pre-Sea Change in our perceptions. And for his album I Love segment, Eric has decided to, well, he's going to be talking about Frente's album Marvin the Album. He's gone through his collection and thought, well, what's a little bit folky, a little bit poppy? I know, I'll go to the other side of the planet and he's dug out his tape that he's very, very fond of. So uh, later on in the show, his album I Love segment will be about Frente, Marvin the Album, and Accidentally Kelly Street, which until I heard his segment, I don't think I'd listen to that in many a year. So anyway, that's all coming up later on in the show. We're going to go to a quick break. Joe's going to give you the contact details, and then Pat and I will be back to talk about Beck. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 111. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. 
or search for Love That Album in the iTunes Store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. out. very much for tuning in you're listening to love that album morris here cat over there and we're here to talk to you about beck uh, and in a few minutes we'll be talking specifically about his album sea change but i guess that the inevitable question to start this off is pat what was the first album of beck's that you were exposed to and was that the album that first impressed you uh, I'd say like most people, Morris, I think the first things I heard were probably the Loser single. and then Mellow Gold, Mm -hmm. and I liked them. I I, I think I was a bit puzzled because at the time he was sort of knocking around about the same time as people like the John Spencer Blues Explosion, Mm. um, the, the Beastie Boys, Sonic Youth. Nirvana, all bands I, I, I really liked, particularly the Blues Explosion and the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth. So he kind of struck me as the younger, folkier kind of brother <laughs> or cousin or something like that. And I was impressed and just thought he wrote good pop songs. A little later on, a couple of musicians I know kind of broke down some of the component parts 
of some of his more famous songs, and that that made me even more intrigued because you know he was sampling Dr. John and them and things like that, which I found really interesting. For whatever reason it was, I don't actually recall hearing Loser when it came out, much less anything else from Mellow Gold. I mean, I was aware of it, and I was listening to Triple R, so I'm really quite surprised that I didn't hear it crop up on the Breakfast Show, or maybe I didn't. I sort of wasn't paying attention, but that was not my entry point to Beck. I think it was in 1996 when Joanne and I were traveling around and we ended up in San Francisco, caught up with a friend, and she was taking us around Berkeley and we're in this bookshop and they were playing over their speaker system, Odelay. And despite not being someone who's that much into hip hop, but yet this was something that was very different. Way back when my Cadillac pants going much too fast. Karaoke weekend at the suicide shack. Community service and I'm still the Mac. Shock my finger, spice in my hand. The it's not a thing on the Beastie Boys. That was not my thing. But this was coming from somewhere different. It was you know him mixing up his other influences. Obviously he loved blues and he loved folk, but he was putting his rhymes and his rhythms over it, and it just seemed to me to be something that I was really attracted to and yet that was still not the album that I went out and bought at least not initially I think shortly after we came back or maybe it was a year or two later I was listening to The Twang Show on Triple R hosted by Denise Highlands and she played or a few songs from Mutations when that album came out which sort of strikes me as a little bit odd because it's not really a country album but then again I guess you know Denise was always wanting to be diverse and get people in whatever way she could to see the beauty in country music and you know songs that she played like like nobody's fault but my own. Treated you like a rusty blade, a throw away from an open grave. Cut you loose from a chain gang and let you go. And on the day you said it's true, some love holds, some gets used. Tried to tell you I never knew it could be so sweet. Which had this beautiful drone-like sound and the elegance of We Live Again were songs that I was really, really attracted to. So I think that that album certainly played on a lot of people's minds who were expecting a son of Odelay. And I think I read at the time where people were suggesting that the album was only like a fill-in album until his next real album. And that sort of got me a little bit angry. I'm not sure what Beck thought about that at the time or whether he was perpetrating that myth. But to me, I thought, well, this sounds like a really well-produced album. The instrumentation and the arrangements sounded very full and very well produced to me. So I'm not really quite sure why that myth was going around that this is just a fill-in album between real albums. I'd heard that Mutations were you know, firmly a, a tribute to the Tropicalia sound and even the titles are a homage to Os Mutante. Mm. Um, and I never heard that. I heard that that was a fully formed record. 
so no news to me completely. Did you like the Beastie Boys at the time, Mark? They were a band which I respected. I think in particular, I saw a video clip many years ago of them on Saturday Night Live. They were starting to play one of their own tracks. And, you know, this is the first I sort of perceived of them as a band rather than three guys behind turntables, which was really, I guess, not my thing. All of a sudden, I saw them on Saturday Night Live and then in a send-up of a segment that had gone wrong many years ago with Elvis Costello and the Tractions getting him banned from Saturday Night Live. They parodied that by Elvis running out on Mm. stage and interrupting the Beastie Boys and saying, no, 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 this isn't going to work. One, two, three, four. And then they move into playing Radio Radio, which was the song that got him banned from Saturday Night Live many years before. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but there's just really no reason to do this song here tonight. One, two, three, four! Then watching them play with him, I sort of thought, oh, wow, you know, these guys really are a great band. But as for their own material, I, I did try to listen to, I think it was Paul's Boutique. And look, I respect them, but it was never really my thing. Now, the only reason I ask is I, I think Odelay and Paul's Boutique are produced by the same people. Right. Yes, I, I, I think, think I did realise that. The Dust Brothers? Yep. I think there's just, I think maybe the one song, I can't remember which one it is, but there's one song on Odelay that strikes me as being purely influenced by the same style that the Beastie Boys were putting out. The thing that I love about Odelay, and probably the one consistency between Odelay and Mutations, in fact, is the diversity. So you got maybe, I think it was might have been Novocaine. That was a song that reminded me mm. of the Beastie Boys. But you've got, you know, songs like Jackass, which, you know, is acoustic and vocy and where it's at, which is old school hip hop, and Sissy Neck, which sounds like Southern Fried Funk. And Mutations also has its diversity because songs like Bottle of Blues has, you know, maybe is the one true country song on the album. Nobody's fault but my own has that eastern style drone which sort of reminded me a little bit of We Will Fall from the Stooges and Diamond Bollocks which sort of has a bit of a psychedelia wig out feel to it so both albums they have that sort of level of diversity and maybe that's the one consistency is the amount of different stuff that he does but uh, I, I never really sort of considered Odelay to be too much of that one song aside like what the Beastie Boys were doing and you know full credit to the Dust Brothers for playing to each act's strengths I think rather than trying mm. to make them sound too mm. much alike the other thing I was going to say in relation to Beck's music lyrically before we got to Sea Change now Sea Change has been spoken about a lot as a great breakup album and the songs lyrically are very miserable but if you sort of go looking at those two albums that I just sort of mentioned there's a lot that's going on that's fairly dark and songs like Devil's Haircut on Odelay and some of the songs on Mutations like you know Nobody's Fault But My Own they're fairly dark in tone and like Devil's Haircut Something's Wrong 
because my mind is fading and everywhere I look, there's a dead end waiting. Something's wrong because my mind is fading. And everywhere I look, there's a dead end waiting. Temperatures dropping at the rotten oasis. Stealing kisses from the leprous faces. A lot of those songs on that album seem to have him in a dark frame of mind. He's not someone who writes happy, cheesy sort of songs. So really, he was in some ways well prepared for what he was going to do by the time he got to see Change. Of course, as well, though, I would note that maybe someone like Bob Dylan from his Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde period where the lyrics are fairly abstract, he seems to have used that maybe, I don't know, if, if, as a direct influence, but he did write lyrically in ways pre-Sea Change that were not straight ahead. It's not necessarily clever ways of telling straight ahead songs. He likes to play around with words. Maybe he knows what they mean. Maybe they're just meant to be there to be poetry. I'm, I'm not sure. There's albums like Stereopathetic Soul Manure and One Foot in the Grave that probably both arrangements-wise and lyrically probably point forward to lots of things recur on Sea Change. Mm-hmm. And I think even Beck himself has said that there's, there's sort of a link lyrically between One Foot in the Grave, both stylistically and, and definitely lyrically, and Sea Change. So I think Beck is a little bit like David Bowie, in as much as Bowie once said, I think he said it, or someone else said it about him, that he will occasionally follow up an album, five albums down the track, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He'll return to something maybe a decade later and then another decade later he'll do it again and I think Beck while perhaps maybe not been quite so overt in that I think he does touch on it so I think there is possibly a vague thread from things like One Foot in the Grave to Mutations to Sea Change but I haven't thought about it a lot but I think it's probably there It's interesting that you mentioned Bowie I couldn't really quite articulate why I thought the same thing that there was a connection between the two maybe because of the diversity I mean we could also say that for a period of time for a good chunk between the 70s and the 80s that Neil Young was diverse between his albums you know putting something like you know going from Harvest to On the Beach going to Hawks and Doves and the like and yet I would never sort of go compare Beck stylistically to Neil Young and maybe Beck isn't really quite like Bowie was musically but I think he probably has more in common except maybe he didn't create a character or a series of characters like Bowie has. I think that as much as I like Neil Young you'd pretty much say that Neil more or less was working within the white either rock or kind of country idioms. Mm. I think one thing about Bowie and Beck is that they are both incredible bowerbirds. They borrow frequently from things that you you wouldn't necessarily bring two things together, but Bowie and Beck and a few other people have the ability to steal or borrow from... No, we'll say steal um, (laughs) from from one genre and bang it up against another one and and make something completely different. And I I think they did that unashamedly. And I I think that's definitely true. And I I think you've probably seen that, that clip for Beck's version of Sound and Vision. Oh 
actually, yeah. I haven't. No. Oh man, you, you, it's, he's, he performs sound and vision, and he's backed by basically a hundred musicians. Wow, I'm gonna have to look that it's, up. It's pretty astounding, and I think that was um, going off on a tangent here, but I think that was Beck making explicit the fact that he's you know inspired by Bowie's ability to kind of you know just pinch from various places. I think Beck occasionally would return to a theme that he established on an earlier album, much in the same way as Bowie did. Sorry eyes cut through bone make it hard to leave you alone. So let's actually lead from that to sea change. And the release of the album was pretty well documented that it was prompted by a relationship breakup. The history of pop music and no doubt, you know, other art forms have countless examples of songs, you know, post-breakup or even maybe at the very least fictionally emoting the story of a breakup. Now, I tend to put breakup songs into two categories. There's the don't fuck with an ex that can write about it. So those are the songs that are vitriolic and nasty and are out to publicly vent that the ex was an asshole and the songwriter is better off without them. So maybe songs like Idiot Wind or Harry Nelson's You're Breaking My Heart, examples of that. And then there's the I'm so miserable my life has no meaning. So that could probably include just about anything by Roy Orbison or Chris Isaac. And I say that as a fan of both. On Sea Change, I think Beck has mostly gone for the second option. Though there's one song on the album which we'll get to that I think he's attempting the first, but I think he's too numb to really get too vitriolic about it, but we'll get to that. Are you a fan of the breakup album, the breakup song as a concept? No, not really. Okay. Um, I mean, there's some really good ones, but I generally find them incredibly self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And the older I've gotten, I've found them my actually let's say enjoying them to be sort of voyeuristic okay and uh, I, I, I generally don't like them when I do listen to them I tend not to dwell on the lyrics too much yep. I'd rather just get emotion triggered by the music rather than the specifics of, of the lyrics if you feel voyeuristic listening to a song about a breakup then about the other side of the coin if someone's gone and written a song about the great love of their life does that make you feel equally voyeuristic Yes, often. Okay. If it's done in a kind of clever way and in an evocative way, both musically and lyrically, then I'm usually entirely fine by that. Mm -hmm. But if they're kind of, how can I put it, reading out a list of how wonderful this person is, (laughs) or how awful this person is, or I don't know, they took all my favourite books and all that kind of nonsense. (laughs) Um, A good friend of mine who was in a band and, you know, could do a fairly miserable love song when he put his mind to it. Yeah, often used to introduce one of those songs as something like, you know, this is a seventh million song written about unrequited love. And that's often how I feel about it. But if it's put to good music, evocative music, then usually I'm there. 
I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, that pretty much does. I'd probably just sort of add to that. I mean, I don't have the same sort of feeling that you do about a love song or a breakup song. I think as long as an interesting story is being told and it's therapeutic for the artist, then bullio for them. But I would add that I like hearing a unique take on something like what Ben Folds 5 do on their song for the dumped because that's equally humorous as much as anything mm. fuck you and give me back my black t-shirt it's, it's just so funny so sure. I, I like that take on it oh, that's fair enough that makes perfect sense one thing though that I will say about an album like this which I guess is supposed to be seen as being very emotional for Beck is I wanted to talk a little bit about his vocals now unlike someone like Chris Isaac on say an album like Forever Blue where every song he's trying to drip it with emotion and it sounds like he's crying. I don't think that Beck's vocals sound any sort of different on this album where he's supposed to be shedding all these tears, shedding all these emotions about his breakup compared to how he sings Devil's Haircut. I mean, maybe notwithstanding the last 30 seconds of Devil's Haircut, but pretty much I think he always sings within the one voice. That's not a criticism because I like what he does. But if anything, I think he's less emotional and more weary on these songs. I think Beck is a really, really good singer. I think he's a very diverse singer. He can adopt personas simply through his singing voice, not just the way he's singing. It's interesting you should mention that because I read an interview with Nigel Godric, who I think produced this album. Right, he did. Who yeah, said yeah. that that Beck's voice changed between Midnight Vultures, the album that preceded this one, mm. and Sea Change. He suggested that his voice deepened, and that that gave the songs on Sea Change greater resonance, and also I think probably aided in that, uh, I don't know, maybe the sense or the atmosphere that you were referring to a minute ago of sort of resignation. Yep. And, you know, not misery, not despair, just resignation. And yep, exactly. His, according to Nigel, his voice changing played a big part in that. Yeah, look, that's interesting. I think I read a similar article, maybe it was even Beck had said in an interview that his voice had dropped. I couldn't pick it between Odelay and Sea Change. I couldn't really pick it, but Nigel Godrich was in the chair and Beck knows his own voice, so it must have been. If nothing else, maybe, you know, it, for me, it's just the vocal approach, the attack to the notes, as it were, that well, doesn't seem radically different to me. But I guess, yeah, Nigel had that unique perspective of sitting in the producer's chair and working with him, and he's certainly a producer I respect. Yeah, it's interesting that if you listen to Midnight Vultures and then listen to Sea Change, immediately after, his voice has changed, his persona has changed. It's almost like the difference between Marvin Gaye let's get it on I want you mm. and hear my dear Midnight Vultures is very much I hesitate to use the word pastiche but it's a homage to the R&B lover man and then it's something else with Sea Change so I always listen to those two these Midnight Vultures and Sea Change pretty much together yeah look I've only heard Midnight Vultures a couple of times I'm look a big fan of the single Sex Laws quite sure why I haven't sort of gone and followed up with that. I think really apart from the three inverted commas songwritery albums of Mutations, 
sea change and morning phase plus Odelay. I think the only other album that I feel confident in maybe talking about a little bit is Modern Guilt. So I probably need to sort of go back and give Midnight Vultures some more attention, but that strikes me as being like a really fun album. Oh, it is. It's got some serious stuff on it too, but it's kind of hidden in kind of pop and funk, let's call it dressing. So the information is the same, and so is Guero. Those albums all have really quite often serious things to say, but they're kind of disguised by, uh, I guess, pop or funk or hip-hop or electro-trapping. So mm. I, I think Beck is, I know we're meant to be talking about Sea Change, but he's one of those artists that I think you have to look at the entire body of work, even the latest album, Colours, it's all kind of one big picture. Mm. So, but Sea Change, is a, as you say, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty big part of the picture. Which is partly why I think I've taken until now to talk about Sea Change, because I've long been aware that I've only sort of really seen part of the picture rather than his whole discography. And certainly the album that you mentioned earlier on, One Foot in the Grave, was one that I think I got about two or three songs into and I thought, no, this is not for me. Couldn't actually sort of take it much further. I mentioned before about the resignation and you know you seem to be on that angle as well. And really a perfect song on this album that displays that is the song Guess I'm Doing Fine. heartbroken tradition it's it's not exactly what i'd call quite passive aggressive but it is saying i'm miserable i'm happy but don't worry i'm okay leave me in the dark you know when he sings things like it's only lies that i'm living it's only tears that i'm crying it's only you that i'm losing i guess i'm doing fine i mean i really like that approach to a lyric. I mean, that has its place as much as I'm really miserable, why did you leave me, or go to hell for doing this to me. The, you know, the passive aggressiveness is another angle to be taken lyrically. It's a beautiful, very, very sparse arrangement. And we should talk a little bit about his band. With all these guys, the guys who came on the tour that you just recently went and saw, so, you know, Joey Ronka on drumming and... Uh... No, Joey wasn't there. Oh, that's a shame. He's such a good player, but on this album, he just shows incredible restraint, but you know, a lot of great taste. It's everything is pulled back. Yeah, Roger Manning was there, and Jason Faulkner. Uh, I can't remember who else was there. He had a new drummer and a new bass player, a newish. Uh, I think another keyboard player and two or three percussionists and a violinist. Some of those people were doubling up on instruments. I saw the tour that basically toured Sea Change, and it was, from memory, pretty much, it was Smokey Hormel on guitar and Joey Waronka. Right, who were on the uh, album, yeah. Yeah, and, and Roger Manning. 
and the, the bass player whose name I can't remember, but uh, it'll come to me in a minute. He looks like Bootsy Collins. No, it's gone. No, never mind. Don't worry, yeah. <laughs> I was speaking to um, my good friend Jeff, who I recorded an episode of Love That Album with, talking about an album called, I think it was Elsie, by the band The Horrible Crows. And I remember at the time he told me that I was cruel and didn't have a heart because that was another album that was a heartbreak album. And you mentioned the word earlier on, Pat, self-indulgence. And to me, that really was. My friend Jeff had gone and said to me, you've obviously never had your heart thrown off a clip, had a big boulder drop onto it, and then had it stomped on and mashed around in glass. And I said, well, fortunately, you're right. That hasn't happened to me. Well, even if it had, Morris, you didn't go and get a subject a large part of the Western world to you bleating about it with a company by an acoustic guitar. That's the bigger point, I reckon. <laughs> I'm, I'm a kind person, or maybe I don't just don't have the songwriting talent to be able to do that. I never felt that this album, and, and certainly you know the other artists who I mentioned before, you know Chris Isaac or Roy Orbison, fall in the same camp. I don't feel the same self-indulgence I don't know beauty in the bar, in the eye of the beholder and all that sort of thing but I feel I can listen to those albums repeatedly I couldn't get away from the horrible crows quickly enough my apologies to you Jeff if you're listening but you know where I stand on that something that Beck does across a few of his songs that are in a more acoustic vein because if you listen to the more up-tempo vibrant albums like you know your Odelays and your Midnight Vultures and all that he's obviously playing a lot with spacey sounds and synth effects and all that and even when he's doing something a bit more acoustic based he doesn't seem to be able to leave the chaos or the electronic sounds too far away so if you sort of think like the end of everybody's got to learn sometime which was his cover version of the Corgis song, which I think he did in the Eternal Sunshine soundtrack. And on this album, I think at the end of The Golden Age, it ends off with those beep, 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 beeps, and I think there might be another couple of songs, and even Cancel Check sort of ends in some level of chaos. Clear your time is nearly gone read anything or can you perceive why he does end some of these songs in that way? I think there's probably two things and these are just things that uh, I guess we'll call them theories of mine. I mm-hmm. don't recall him ever saying it. One is that I don't think Beck has ever wanted anyone listening to his albums to be entirely comfortable to be thinking that they have got him figured out. Yep. So that every now and again, he likes to kind of, if not jolt people, but just to give them a slight nudge to say, hey, this isn't what you think it is. The other thing is, is that, and I'm sure you were probably going to get to this, I think there's a couple of really big inspirations. Well, there's two sorts of inspirations for Sea Change. If you look at the cover versions he was performing live at the time, he was doing Rolling Stones songs from around Beggar's Banquet. He was doing No Expectations and Salt of the Earth. And he was doing Mississippi John Hurt songs and Skip James songs. Yep. So there's that kind of raw but slightly discordant sound in all of those artists. You know, none of those songs are comfy songs. The other thing is that I think there was two big, how would I put it, 
influences in terms of arrangement and sequencing of songs on this album. Uh, one of them is you know, Serge Gainsbourg's Melody Nelson record. <laughs> together to make this kind of almost symphonic kind of funk sound which is at times unsettling and at the same time comforting and the strings of the arrangement on those records were written by a guy called Jean-Claude Vanier who composed all the string arrangement for Gainsbourg on that record mm -hmm. and then I think a year or two later he had his own record which I won't attempt the French <laughs> but it's a concept album and it translates as The Child Assassin of the Flies. And the string arrangements on that are mind-blowing and quite terrifying at times. You can hear that influence in the way that at the end of some of the songs on Sea Change, there's this surge, if you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> of strings that just become discordant. And I think that's the influence, or it's, or it's just a nod to Jean-Claude Vanier, particularly The Child Assassin of the Flies, which is a bit of a, a cult classic of right. a record. That's just something I think, I think the, the, you know, the Beck's love of Serge is well known, and no doubt his love of Jean-Claude is also well known. But I think the sound on Jean-Claude's solo album, is, that's a pretty big influence. That's my only guess, Morris. I think it's as good as any hypothesis that anyone's come up with. I'm certainly glad I asked. Actually, I want to come back to what you were talking about, orchestral surge, in a few minutes. But as long as we're talking about orchestral arrangements, then I think I want to sort of devote a couple of minutes to talking about Beck's father, David Campbell. Now, I'd known that it was him behind the orchestral arrangements on this album and its spiritual successor, Morning Phase, a few years later, but I didn't really know anything about him as a composer or as an arranger in his own right. So I did a little bit of looking around and I found out that he started out as a viola player and he had a love of writing orchestral arrangements, but he hadn't really had the opportunity to do it on a large scale. He was hired as a session player for an obscure album. Uh, I think it's called Tapestry by Carole King. <laughs> and he played viola on a couple of the cuts, one of which was You Got a Friend. He happened to mention during the sessions to Carole King that he had a love of writing orchestral arrangements. And Carole called him up before recording her album Rhymes and Reasons about an album or two later and said she had time limitations, time restrictions. Did he want to write the orchestral arrangements for her? Now, we're talking about a songwriter and arranger who, in whatever it was, 10 years, already had a lifetime of experience in the industry, was no slouch in the arrangement part of song composition. And she was asking him, so at whatever age he was, 23, 24, being asked to write orchestral arrangements for Carole King is mm. no small thing. Catch the sun rising And we'll chase it from the mountains To the bottom of the sea 
So I go and have a look online and find out that he's gone and written arrangements for heaps and heaps of people. And just I'll read out a list of about five or six to give you an idea of the diversity. He'd written either orchestral arrangements or he'd composed for people like Adele, Dream Theatre, Metallica, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and an album that I really love, School Days by Stanley Clark. And I believe he recently worked live with my beloved Glenn Hansard. And he'd worked on films. He'd worked on Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Brokeback Mountain, Dead Man Walking, Grace of My Heart, which brings back sort of to the Carol King link, and a film that I really love. He did, I don't know that he actually wrote the music, I think because Don was wrote the music, but he might have done the arrangement for the non-diegetic music for the film Backbeat about the Beatles' early days in Hamburg. And this is just a fraction of the stuff that I found online. He's absolutely amazing. And the thing that I noticed and he reinforced in an interview was that he writes his arrangements, his orchestral arrangements, to make the songs sound great. Now, that might sound obvious, but he doesn't make the songs about his orchestral arrangements. He's saying, your song to whoever is he's writing for. Well, we'll talk about Beck. So his songs, he's writing the orchestral arrangements for Beck are there just to augment what Beck's already done. He's saying, right, son, you've written this great song. It works well in its own right. I'm just going to prop it up a little bit. I'm not going to make it about these technically complex things that I could do with the orchestra in the song. It's your song, not my song. I'm just going to write something simple. And it's always simple, but works so beautifully. And I should say, not but. It's simple and it works beautifully. Beck and David Campbell... I mean, I don't know. I've not read anything to confirm this, but unlike a lot of other father-son relationships within the music world, here we have a case where the son is in the public eye a lot more than the father. I mean, obviously, the father is well-known and well-loved within the session music community or the film community for what he's done. But Beck doesn't have to live up to his father's reputation as far as the public is concerned, because the public only really knows him by name. He's not like Julian Lennon having to live up to John Lennon's name. They can have a more honest sort of relationship. Really love what he does. It's so I think tasteful is probably the best word that would describe what David Campbell does for his son's music and there doesn't appear to be any ego there it's I love what you do and I'm there to support it and the song I want to cite is Lonesome Tears Lonesome Tears I can't cry them anymore I can't think of what they're for Because you said before, Pat, that there's this big orchestral surge and the music for the main part, the orchestra stays on the periphery of this song, another song in this catalogue that is Sea Change of I'm really, really miserable. I mean, with a song name like Lonesome Tears, what else would you expect? But what I find most interesting about this song is the build-up of the orchestra in the coda and the lower part of the orchestra doing what sounds like a descending scale. But it's not really a scale. It is a melody, but it sounds like a scale. And the upper registry strings are playing an ascending scale.
that counterpoints as good as, as anything. Two different melodies are going in different directions, two different escalators. And it's, it sounds simple when you think about it, but just I think it took real genius on David Campbell's part to make that work in the framework of that song. That's probably one of my favourite songs on the album. Is there a favourite song or favourite moment that works for you on the album? I really like the first three songs, I like, which is side one of the record, and only because... I think they kind of take Beck's influences, the golden age, and guess I'm doing fine in particular, and kind of set out his stall for the whole record. Paper Tiger actually is the, the thing, I, my favourite track on the whole album, Paper Tiger. No more ashes to ashes No more cinders from the sky time I heard it I laughed out loud because it's homage to Serge Gainsbourg it's so overt it's so deliberate that it sort of punctures the kind of the slightly pompous kind of nature of this record like it's you know it comes across as a really serious record yes and Paper Tiger in a like both the name and the sound of this of that song the arrangement everything is so obvious and over the top about it that it's it's obvious that he's having fun and the arrangement is theft from Surge, and that's fantastic. So that's my favourite song on it because it's Beck, even in this kind of mire of uh, resignation bordering on misery, he's still he's having a laugh. You know, his tongue is in his cheek, and that appeals to me greatly. It's probably the only song on the album that has got a slight hint of Midnight Vultures. It's okay. Just, it's just like that big phonic kind of funk sound. So that's the reason I like it, that even at his most kind of consistently sad record, sad and serious record, he's still capable of, you know, smiling. And that's why Paper Tiger's my favourite song on the record. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that it does have a slight funk edge. And yeah, it did strike me that Joey Roronka does set up within this limited setting that he can do, but he does set up a groove going there. And I'm not sure that you could say that about any other song on the album. So, no. And also out of those three songs, just my quick thought on the golden age... Your hands on the wheel at the golden age begin. The window down in the moonlight on your skin.
like how if you had gone and put this album on not knowing anything about the history and not knowing anything about where the rest of the album was going it does set out like a mission statement but he subverts your expectation because the opening few lines of the song put your hands on the wheel let the golden age begin let the window down feel the moonlight on your skin makes it sound like ah this is going to be a positive album whatever's happened before i'm having a new start in life and then he sings these days i barely get by i don't even try and boom uh oh mm. this song is not going where i think it's going and the rest of the album more or less goes in that mold but i like how he takes that expectation that you have or at least that i had anyway and goes somewhere completely different with it so i just wanted to quickly ask you again about paper tiger you mentioned search gainsburg influence is it a homage to a particular song or just stylistically because of the string uh, arrangements it's probably the overall string and the way the strings lock with the bass on melody nelson there's echoes of a number of songs from Melody Nelson to be found in Paper Tiger. From memory, there's no overt, like no one song. Mm -hmm. And I've just remembered the name of the bass player. It's Justin Meldall Johnson. Okay. Yeah, uh, and other people have used kind of the same air, have done the same thing. They, a couple of times, have used, not lifted from one single Serge song, but just taken the flavour, which is what Beck's done. Yep. And Jarvis Cocker did the same thing. So yeah, it, it's not one specific third song. It's, it's the flavour of Melody Nelson. Mm. Now, we had a little bit of a typed conversation earlier on, was it today or yesterday? And I mentioned to you something that I'd found a little bit strange, and I think you found it even stranger than I did, was that there have been a number of articles I'd read comparing this album to the music of Nick Drake. And for the most part, I'm not inclined to go along with that comparison. Now, before I sort of go saying why I think that is, were, were there any thoughts that you wanted to share with the listeners about that comparison being bogus, or do you see anything in it? Thematically, I guess, in, in terms of lyrics, I, I was thinking about this after you and I had that chat. I, I think we're probably talking about Pink Moon and things like that. Unhappy records, if, yep. if you know what I mean. So it's, it's, I, I don't know. I think that's a bit of an easy comparison. There's probably the string arrangements, you know, Robert Kirby, one of the great string arrangers. Is, I'm sure that Beck really likes In fact, I know he does. He's covered Nick Drake live. So that, that makes sense. But um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I did hear a cover version that he did of Parasite, I think, from Pink Moon. Mm, yeah, he's, he's sung Pink Moon and... Yeah, any, anyway, there's a little bit there. It probably crops up on one or two songs, but I, I, I don't think it's a big deal personally. Yeah. I, I think it's just an easy comparison to make. I think that Beck on this album tends to go more for a strummed guitar approach. And one thing I think that was notable of Nick Drake was his very precise finger-picking approach to the guitar. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was a big part of his sound. So, yeah, that's where I sort of think, you know, in a way, apart from the fact that the two gents are <laughs> doing maybe dark material and playing acoustic guitars, that's one thing where it breaks down. As personalities, I would imagine they were completely different right. um, human beings in terms of like their artistry. I think from what I, everything I've read and every time I've seen him, Beck does not lack for confidence. No, no, that's it. Yeah, he, he's not an introvert. That's right. No, he, he's as a live performer, he's incredible. He, he has never disappointed any time I've seen him. My wife saw him once where he was obviously not well, but he, he delivered but probably only 50% of what he would normally do. Mm -hmm. While, as we all know, Nick Drake 
and the stage never got along. Beck is prolific and you know, he's moving, he's a gregarious kind of human being. He moves in and out of scenes, he works with other people. So yeah, I am probably taking this somewhere ridiculous, but um what I'm what I'm trying to say is you know, I'm sure Beck was inspired by the sound of Nick Drake's record, but I think that's about it. And as you say, the guitar playing is completely different. Mm -hmm. But having listened to the album over and over again, I will make one exception. And this is not so much comparing the two artists as being similar, but one song that I think indicates that Beck took direct inspiration from something that Nick Drake did compositionally is his song on Sea Change, Round the Bend, which has a similar, if not quite the same, but very similar sort of chord progression to Nick's song, Riverman. Betty came by on the way Said she had a word to say things today and fallen leaves said she had Campbell's orchestration around the bend for most of the song is to me a really haunting string section reflecting the D minor to D major chord progression. Beck strums very simply on the guitar and truth be known without an orchestra I think the song might still work but for most of it being an absolute sort of stark song compositionally I think that the augmentation really really works here. I think that on the song Riverman it's also a strummed song unusually for him but it seems to have a more defined pattern. It's like, I think it's a 5-4 time signature, so it's more of a defined pattern than Beck's song is, but uh, this D minor to D major chord progression, it, it's there repeatedly, but you know, with a couple of other chords in between, yet the emphasis still seems to be on those two chords like they are in Beck's song. And that's probably about the one right. moment where I will sort of say there's a valid comparison between the two, and that's more compositionally than performance-wise. But mm. yeah, look, as you've gone and say, probably it'd be fair to say that the Drake albums are in Beck's record collection and he takes them out to listen to them but you could say that about any number of artists who he probably yeah. listens to and I like how you mentioned before about Mississippi John Hurt because there's certainly a little bit of that on one of the songs on Odelay of all places so he strikes me as someone who's what's the audio equivalent of very well read <laughs> he's very well heard yeah yeah nice so look I mean look we could go into other songs but I didn't really want to make this a track by track sort of thing hmm. but just overall I think you know the listeners out there sort of get our impression as to you know how we feel about this album. The songs that we've gone and singled out for attention here give you a really good idea. If you haven't listened to this album, then I'd certainly urge you to give it a play. If you're a fan of the more up-tempo Beck and you've sort of not really given this much of a chance or been fairly dismissive of it, then just turn out the lights 
you know, put this on in your headphones, even if you don't really like misery porn lyrics. Uh, just <laughs> you, you can ignore them and just listen to the beauty of these melodies. They're really, really something special. Any final thoughts, Pat? Only that I think as much as I really like this record, and I really like it, it perhaps held in almost too much reverence in Beck's catalogue. Mm-hmm. People focus on it a bit too much, and they're people who aren't necessarily Beck fans, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. They'll say, I like Sea Change. Right. And I think it's just a big part of his catalogue. Uh, sorry, it's, a, it's a, a part of a big catalogue. And I think Beck is someone that, if we're still talking about music in 20 or 30 years in terms of albums and you know a body of work, that this will be seen as part of a really significant body of work. It's interesting that when I last saw him perform in Melbourne uh, about a month or so ago, he did one song. From memory, he did Golden Age. Yep. And it didn't work in isolation. It, it, he did, I think, two songs from Morning Fave and one song from Sea Change. And the shift in gears from what everything else he was doing. And he'd been doing ballads and folk and blues and funk and pop and hip hop, the whole set. The, the, the gig was amazing. But halfway through it, or a third of the way through it, he did the kind of orchestral acoustic kind of thing. And it... It just didn't work. It was good, but it stood out in stark relief to everything else that had happened around it. It almost seemed like an anomaly. It's interesting. Just sort of wonder whether he even feels the need to do anything off that album just because it's a fan favourite, given that that album was supposed to be a catharsis, supposedly, for him. And maybe it's as much down to the performance or where it was placed in the set that might have made it a letdown. Yeah, possibly. I also think that he said himself on stage that he hadn't played in Melbourne for something like eight years, maybe nine. And I think he just felt an obligation to cover I mean, he did stuff from One Foot in the Grave up until the the latest album. So he went everywhere and did lots of interesting covers. He did Everybody's Got to Learn Sometime. Oh, um, man. Yeah, it was just interesting that, he, as you say, he felt the need to do them. But they're almost things that probably need to stand alone. And I saw the Sea Change. I think it was a Sea Change tour. It's kind of like a blend of Midnight Vultures and Sea Change. And he did sort of quite distinct sets at that point sort of started with the, more, the starker, more ornate, more orchestral things, and then kind of went into the kind of funk R&B stuff later. It's just interesting. Mm. Um, I think he I think he knows it's an important album. I think he knows that people feel strongly about it. I think he knows that for lots of people, it's the Beck album that they can relate to. So in as much as you, know, you were talking about, you know, having your heart crushed, et cetera, et cetera, mm. people, this is the Beck album people relate to. So he probably feels that he has some obligation to at least touch upon it whenever he performs live. It was, it was just interesting. I mean, look, I think that 20, 30 years from now or sometime in the future when the story of Beck is told or when the story of popular music in general has been told, that Odelay and its ilk will be seen as the game changer. Personally, I would rather listen to Sea Change over Odelay. And I say that as someone who likes Odelay, and I do take it out often to give it a spin, but I probably prefer Sea Change. And I don't know, maybe in a way I like Mutations the best of those three. Morning Phase I like a lot, but it's Sea Change Part 2. I have really mixed feelings about Morning Phase. I like the sound of it. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I can't hum a single song from Morning Face. A friend of mine who's a musician who I used to work with said, sing like three lines of a lyric from Morning Face. <laughs> and I just went, I can't. 
he said morning phase is like a warm bath. It's kind of pleasant at the time, but it's just another warm bath once you get out. <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to have to use that expression somewhere. Morning phase is, is really enjoyable, but it doesn't kind of hit quite as hard and as deep yep. as sea change or as Odelay or as mutations or as midnight vultures, I think. They're all kind of aiming for different things. Morning phase is a really nice warm bath. Yep. Well, nothing wrong with a, a warm bath. I'm quite. <laughs> no, no. I'm quite fond of a warm bath from time to time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn straight. Yeah. As, long as, as long as your friend didn't call it a tepid bath, that would be a little. No, 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 no. I'm pretty sure it was warm. Okay, yeah. good. Man, sorry, Morris. I've taken this conversation somewhere very strange. That's <laughs> why I invited you on. I like those diversions. Cool. Okay, and with that, we'll finish off this conversation about Beck's warm bath album. I mean, Sea Change album. And we'll go now to Eric Reanimator's album I love segment and hear what he has to say about Frente's Marvin the album. And we'll be back in a few moments to close off episode 111 of Love That Album. Thanks very much for listening. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. Reanimator. I guess this is welcome to the folk pop era of alternative music. This is Eric Randomator. I'm back with an album I love segment. This is a band from someplace I've never ever heard of called Melbourne, Australia. Anyway, uh, this is Frente with their album Marvin the Album. And I also recently picked up a copy of their second album, Shape, that I really don't know much about, but I figured we'd check a little bit of that out. Frente were a folk pop alternative band from Melbourne that really came to international attention in the mid-90s. I recall seeing the video for this song, Labor of Love, on head, uh, not Headbangers Ball, 120 minutes on MTV, and going out the next day and getting the cassette tape. And I still have my cassette tape, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, once again, recently I did find the CD, which I was happy to find at a thrift shop locally and picked it up and listened to it again and I had forgotten how charming and fun and just kind of innocent this record is and I think in a lot of ways it's probably not well remembered when maybe it should be let me go ahead and play a couple samples and see what you think
So that's just kind of a sample. Most of that comes from Marvin the album. As you can hear it's kind of dark sometimes. It's kind of power poppy sometimes. Kind of breathy. If you like bands like Six Pence, None the Richer, this is a band that goes well with that sound. Now they did have one other big hit in the states, which was a cover of Joy Division's Bizarre Love Triangle. Rather than play that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to play a little bit of the track What's Come Over Me from the Shape album, their second album, which has more of a traditional alt-rock sound. There's an echo of something else from the era in it that I can't put my finger on. At any rate, I know I haven't said much about this band, but I think they really speak for themselves. I think they're an overlooked gem, something that people might not remember or might not have discovered that is well worth tracking down and giving a listen. It's been Eric Reanimator, and I'll catch you all next time. segment and he'll be back next month with not only an album i love segment but also his regular love that album the compilation edition i have to say many many thanks to you pat i know that it's a weeknight it's a school night and you're going off to work tomorrow even though we have the public holiday tomorrow so i'm all the more grateful that you stayed up well past your bedtime to uh, talk with me oh next. no it's, it's, i've had a busy week already morris i um <laughs> I, went to a, I went to a gig last night i've got a couple of gigs at the end of the week possibly one on thursday night so this is this is good practice good training good well i'm glad that you know, you've had an all musical week i mean you always have an all musical week but i'm glad i'm part of that musical mm. week it was a pleasure to be chatting to you again thank you so much and just very quickly for any of the melbourne listeners Listeners, if they want to find Rocksteady Records, they can go down to Mitchell House in Lonsdale Street, near the corner of Lonsdale and Elizabeth. You're up on the first floor. You really should get an A-frame to put outside in the street. Have the council or the landlord given you any grief about that, or is that not an idea? Um, I don't think anyone's going to be interested, but as you brought it up, um, <laughs> there's, there's one allowed for the building. Oh. Someone's already got it, which is fair enough. Bastards. Um, if you put another one out on the street, they come and warn you once. Right. And if it's still out there half an hour later, the fine will take your breath away. Gee. And because it's a national heritage, you know, it's a national trust building, you can't put anything on the on the, the, the outside of the building. So, you know, I, I'm pretty happy with my neon signs. It looks beautiful um, from the other side of the road. That's for 100%. It looks fantastic. Thanks, man. Uh, it's my favourite thing. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm definitely, you know, at level one at, at Mitchell House at 358 Lonsdale Street. And is the website up and running for people to make their orders from outside of Melbourne? It's 
minutes away, Morris. Oh, my goodness. As we speak, really? Well, God, I don't know. Well. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not minutes, literally. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, it's, not, it's not far away, yeah. Fantastic. Looking forward to having a look through the website when it's up, and I'll plug that in the Facebook page. It seems like, actually, social media has been very good for you because the word's gotten out about your existence, and you're getting you know, quite a number of people coming through the old Rocksteady, so wonderful oh, to see. yeah. Um, it's going really well, to be honest. I reckon I probably had all told five to you know eight hundred people through the store on Saturday for a record store day. That's amazing. So that was really good. People queuing up at half past six in, in the morning for those special records. That was interesting. I'm, I might uh, have to come through the store, I think, later on in the week and see what record store day articles you still have that uh, didn't, didn't I, I, door. I punched through a few today, but um, there's, there's, there's some interesting things left. We did have a lot of Courtney Barnett records, but once she walked through the door... They all went, walked out um, the door. Well, yeah, people just like, oh, I better buy this now. and Can I borrow a pen, please? Uh, <laughs> I'm really, really pleased for her. You know, she's been a really great success on her own terms. That's uh, Her new album is amazing. That hasn't been released yet, has it? No, it's not out till around about the middle of May. I was very fortunate to be invited to a, a gig, a special gig at Milk Records last night mm-hmm. where she and her band played through the album from beginning to end for family and friends, probably about 50 people. Yep. And it's a really good record. And I think... She's about to go on tour for it's probably going to amount to two years. Oh, my goodness. Um, so she knows how to work, Courtney. I have nothing but admiration for her. She's still finding it exciting, or you know, does the prospect of two years oh. on the road frighten her? Or no, I think she's good at it, Morris. I think she's really good at it, and mm. she's got a really good band. And you know, she's up for it. She's people. She's one of those artists that people think, oh, she had a lot of luck, lucky breaks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think you know, she's had a couple of you know doors open, but she was there to be knocking on them to begin with, and she works really, really hard. She was on the road for like eighteen months, maybe longer, for that last record. So she's a bit of a warrior. Mm. Um, you know, her partner, Jen, is like, to me, one of the, as, as I think we talked about last year at the, at the end of you know, my favourite records for last year, Jen Clough is just a phenomenal songwriter. Just, and what they've done with Milk Records is just astounding, just by community focus and then just moving it outwards. So inspiring. It is in this day and age where you know we keep hearing about the, the death of the record industry, certainly at international <laughs> conglomerate level, the fact that you know, the little labels that could, really very inspiring. So you know, fantastic work for uh, Milk Records. It's very, very exciting. Mm. So I'll just briefly do a little bit of housekeeping. You want to write to me and tell me about where we got it right, where we got it wrong, albums that we should cover in the future. Put up your hand to say you want to join me on the program. I'm very friendly. I'll take anyone on. You can email me at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. You can join the Facebook group, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album. And even if you don't want to come on the show, just join the Facebook group and write your thoughts about your favorite albums or albums that you you don't like but try and explain it don't just say this sucks please i always want to know what people like and what they don't like about an album you know let's keep this civil but i'm always up for great conversations look joanne Witten said all that in the early notes and the earlier on in the show but just reinforcing that in case you might have forgotten you might have a short memory like i am because i'm old and let's talk about briefly love that album episode 112 coming out in may of 2018 now those of you who've been listening to the show long enough know that i occasionally get a little bit 
slack. But I also like to think of it as I like to give other people the opportunity to do a show instead of me. So you don't always have to hear me blathering on. Well, my very good friend and workmate, Dave Blom, has been chomping at the bit to do a program. He did one last year and he said to me, by gosh, by golly, I want you to piss off while I do a show all my own. And I said, okay, jolly good. What do you want to do? So next month, he's going to go back to 2003. I don't remember what I was doing in 2003, but Dave may remember what he was doing, not what I was doing. And he's going to talk about the debut album for Jet. That's right. Get Born. I just want to know something, Pat. Are you going to be my girl? I'm not going to take that any further. Um, So Dave is going to talk about Jet's 2003 album, Get Born. And I believe that he's got Andre Warhurst to come on and discuss his involvement with the album. So that should be very, very exciting. Andre Warhurst has been a long-time member of the Melbourne music scene, along with Kit Warhurst, playing in a myriad of bands. But they play together in a band called Spoonful. And Miff Warhurst, their sister, is quite big in Radio Land and Spicks and Specks and the like. So there's a bit of a Warhurst. First Dynasty. So good on Dave for uh, securing Andre to come on the show and talk about Get Born by Jet with him. So you won't have to listen to me for a good couple of months. Lucky you people. Please give Dave your support. He'll do a great show. And I'll be back in June of 2018. Uh, I won't say what the album is yet, but it's an album that many people expected I would have covered a long time ago on this program. So more information about that coming to you late May. But in the meantime, once again thanks so much Pat for your time and your input and all your wonderful thoughts on Beck tonight oh my pleasure Boris thanks for having me along and until next month please people as I always like to say be nice to each other listen to a lot of great music go out and support your local record stores don't just leave it for record store day if you have a local bricks and mortar shop go in there chat to the person behind the counter they'll be friendly if you want to start up a good conversation they'll always have something interesting to say and they will welcome the conversation I know this for one 100%. Listen to some great music, go to your record stores, watch great films, read great books, and just generally be nice to each other. Speak to you soon. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 